Today, I want to jump into a two-part message, but before I tell you the title or anything like that, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever been asked, and you can just wave at me, have you ever been asked, I've got good news and bad news, what do you want first? Have you ever been asked that question? Okay. How many of you would raise your hand and say, give me the bad news first? Okay, a good majority. How many of you would say, give me the good news? Really? Okay, so we're excited that today in this two-part message, uh, I thought it would be a slim minority, and that is true. Uh, today, we start a two-part series that I have called News, and this week's message is the bad news. Because the majority of you want the bad news first, so we're gonna, I'm gonna go with you. And then next week, everybody's gonna be really happy because I'm gonna give us all the good news. Um, today, and it seems like the Holy Spirit has been doing something in the messages we've been preaching, in the small groups, in the, uh, times together with youth and with Chi Alpha. God has just been orchestrating something recently that has kind of motivated uh, our hearts to be telling people about the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. And so I wanted to, before we jump into the Christmas season, I wanted to give you the bad news and then the good news because sometimes we don't, well, let me put it to you like this. There are not very many messages preached these days on this subject. In fact, my wife and I, uh, she's the worship leader, Amy, say hi. Um, as we were talking through uh, just worship songs and stuff like that, uh, it's kind of hard these days to find one that speaks of eternity. But I, I can remember the hymns of old, Amazing Grace, How Sweet This, I can remember Pearly Gate songs and all of that kind of stuff, but it seems like we've made a little bit of a transition in at least America and it's really important that we talk about the end of life. And if you have any questions about the financial provision for the end of life, you can see Megan Goodson because she can help you make plans for that. <laughs> Little plug, okay, small plug. Um, she does that as a job. So uh, if you do have questions, you can help with that. So she wasn't expecting that. Neither was I. Okay. Today, my message is the bad news, and I want to tell you about hell. That's You say, Pastor, I came here because I wanted to be encouraged. I think you will be. And today, you'll be more knowledgeable than many other believers because we're going to go through some scripture today to help you understand more about the subject. In fact, you may not realize this, but Jesus preached about hell. He actually spoke about hell more than he spoke about heaven. He spoke about hell 33 times. And the, the reason that I think he did this is because he was filled with compassion, not desiring that anyone would go to that terrible, terrible place. The Bible talks about hell 167 times. Yet many theologians, many pastors, and even entire denominations have begun to distance themselves from the talk about hell or even denying the existence of it completely. According to the Pew Research Center, I'm going to give you some stats this morning. According to the Pew Research Center's religious landscape study, 72% of Americans say they believe in heaven. Now, just because you believe in heaven doesn't mean that's where you're going, but this is a good start, okay? 72% of Americans believe in heaven. 
And this, in this survey question, it's defined as a place where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. And they answered that question. More than 36,000 people were polled. And these are the results from all different demographics, age groups, and races, all different geographical places here in America. And this is what they came up with. But at the same time, only 58% of Americans believe in hell. And hell in the survey as defined as a place where morally bad people are eternally punished. So something's wrong because 72% that believe in heaven, that's not 100%. So we need to work on that. But then there's even more work to do when we see that just over half of Americans believe in a place where you would go and be eternally punished. But the Bible talks about it 167 times and Jesus spoke about it 33 times. I'm going to tell you something that shook me to my core in my study this week. There's another stat that says that 71% of seminary students, these are people who are studying to be in full-time ministry vocationally, they polled eight leading seminaries in the nation and the number is 71% that do not believe in a literal hell. So we've got a problem because hell is real. And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about what will be experienced in hell. And this should be a motivating message for you because the idea is if you're a believer and you're not headed there, you may think, well, why do I need to know about it? Because you know people who are heading there and your job as a believer is to stop them and help them choose another choice, head in a new direction. So, and here's the thing, if you don't believe in hell, can you really believe in heaven? Because the same book, the same God, the same Jesus spoke about both of those things. So we cannot distance ourselves from one and elevate the other. In fact, it's my opinion that if you deny the existence of hell, that you're actually denying the existence of the man who we call Jesus Christ. Because he spoke words about it more than 30 times. And in doing so, we've got, we can't just rip those pages out of the Bible because we don't like them. We've got to learn them and then live according to them. Let me give you some help today. It'll be a little bit of a classroom environment. If you're taking notes, there are some big words coming on the screen. But I'm going to give you four groups of people who deny the existence of hell. The first is the atheist. This is a person that doesn't believe in hell because they don't believe in God. This is different than a person who believes that there is a God somewhere. I just can't get to know him, which would be called an agnostic. But atheists don't believe in hell because they don't believe in God. But yet Psalm 14 verse 1 says this, only the fool believes that there is no God. So chances are you may know some foolish people who have chosen to not believe that God exists. And in doing so, they deny the existence of an eternal place called hell. The second would be what's called annihilationists. These annihilationists, they believe that believers go to heaven and unbelievers are simply annihilated or gone and simply cease to exist. This is not true according to the word of God. 
that seems like it would be a great option. You know, if I don't believe in God, I would just cease to exist and be gone forever to nothing. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The third group of people is ultimate reconciliationists. These people believe that ultimately everyone will be reconciled to God. They think, if you study it a little bit, they think that people who were really bad, you know, imagine serial killers, okay, the worst of the worst that we could think of, go to hell, experience some punishment, and then are purified and able to go to heaven, They actually believe that Satan will ultimately be reconciled to God. There is a larger group of people in this category than you would ever imagine. You think, well, pastor, that doesn't make sense. I know, but I'm just trying to help you uh, understand where people are at on the spectrum. And then the universalist. You may have heard about these people before. Um, There are actually many popular pastors And preachers who have become universalists, they believe that all will be saved eventually. They come to this conclusion as a result of that nagging question that we've asked for millennia. And that is, how can a good God send people to hell? So as they look through scripture, they cherry pick some little sections here and there. And they believe that all will be saved eventually. Essentially, what they're doing is they're removing from the equation free will. You were created by God with something inside of you that cannot be taken away from you. That is your will. Now, some will limit it. If you're in a prison, you can be limited in your free will, but you still have a free will. Those who are fitting into this category remove free will from the equation and essentially say, even if I deny Christ and don't want to be with him, God will still take me in. Now I want to put you, I want to give you some perspective on this and think about it in a real life scenario. That would mean if I am to believe as the fourth category does, like I just explained to you, that would mean that the terrorist of 9-11 upon impact And all of the believers in the planes and in the buildings all went into God's presence immediately. Now, if that shakes you to your core a little bit, there's good reason. Because that's not what God's word talks and says. It's not what he talks about in his word. There is... There are only two destinations in this world. And this week, unfortunately, we're talking about the bad news. But next week, I think I'm going to help you understand more about the good news. Because some of us have this idea that y'all are going to get angel wings and sit on a cloud with a harp or something. We're going to really, I'm going to really help you next week to understand. Go with me to Luke chapter 16. I want to tell you something about this passage, though, before we get into it today. What I want to tell you is this. I want you to understand God's word clearly. You can't imagine things that aren't there. You can't insert stuff that you wish was there. You can't take stuff out of it that you don't like. It's God's word. And it stood the test of time and it continues to do so today. The reason why I lead off with this is because many people don't understand that the story we're about to read is a true story. There's nowhere in this section where we're going to read that it says Jesus spoke this parable, which would be an illustrated story to help them understand the point. 
In no place does it say it's a simile, like Jesus used this, this terminology all the time when he was preaching and sharing the gospel. He would say, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. He would talk about it and give you that image. Jesus does not do that in this passage. So it's really important that you understand this is a true story. It, uh, in the reason why I say that is two parts, and I'll give you reason number one, and then we're going to read, and reason number two. Because in this story, as he tells it, he says there was a certain rich man. Now, the word certain, the way that it's translated for us in our behalf, on our behalf, it means individual or specific person. So there was a certain rich man. This was a man who had lived and now was dead. Then reason number two is in this true story, he names the name of the certain beggar. He actually gives a name. Now in other places when he's talking about analogies, similes, or giving you some word pictures, he won't name names. In this story, he gives a name. It is not a fictitious name. It is a real life person who was a beggar. Side note. The man's name, the the beggar's name, is Lazarus. It is not, you need to understand, the same Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead. They're different places in scripture, categorically. You can do some research, but Lazarus to them was like John is to us. There are thousands, millions maybe, of Johns in the world. It was just a common name. But Jesus gives this name to this man and makes sure that we understand. So, point number one. Hell is real. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 is where we'll begin reading. It says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Other translations use this word bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23, and it says, And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. I want to stop there and I want you to see what Jesus is explaining. Both have died. One's gone to hell, to Hades, another term for that. And the other is cozied up next to Abraham in what you need to understand. And I can't really, it's a, I could give you a six part series on hell or 20 parts probably. You need to understand there's a difference between the place of punishment and paradise before Jesus came to be here on the earth and before he redeemed all mankind. Something really important for you to understand, and this part of the Apostles' Creed, is when it says that Jesus descended into the depths and he preached the news to those who were there, it's talking about he came busting through the doors of a place called paradise and said, listen, y'all, it's done. Come on into my kingdom. And he brought them there. That is a powerful thing that a lot of people miss out on. Yeah. 
So you've got to understand there's a little bit of a difference. If you were to put this picture in your mind of what Jesus is talking about, these places coexisted within a geographical space that you could kind of see from one place to the next with a large chasm in between it. Those who were being punished, who did not believe in the God of the Bible, and those who had lived and had faith in him were in paradise. So listen to what it continues to say. Verse 24, it says, The man, the the rich man, called out from Hades, and he says, Father Abraham, I was struck by this, because Jesus is saying that the man who's in punishment right now called him by a name that would have been only a name that Jewish people, those of God's people, would have called him. He didn't say, hey, old guy with the beard, with that guy next to you that was by my gate. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. It's not changeable. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. For those believers, this is, I'm giving you a lot of material today. But if you go back one verse in verse 25... And pay attention to what you're reading. It is talking about the works that you do while alive. It's very, it's very clear. So here we go. Verse 27. It says, and he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house. If you can't let him come to me, could you at least send him to my father's house? Verse 28. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Look up at me for a second and listen to me. What he's communicating here is, they don't need someone to leave heaven to go preach to them, because they've already got the word of God. They've had the testimony of Moses. They've heard the prophet's messages to the people of Israel. So let them hear them. Verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone were to go to them from the dead, surely they will repent. Surely they will turn around and not be as they are any longer. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophet's, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, the only person who can, who has risen from the dead and been able to share that hope has been given to us to share that hope with others. We have the benefit. Now, if that story were happening today, the reply would happen and say, you have heard Moses, you have heard the prophets, you have the testimony of the Christ, Jesus, the Son of God. 
So no, there's no other possibility. There's no other magic pill. If they don't believe that, how will they ever change? Torment. This word shows up four distinct times in this passage. Jesus described hell as a place of torment and as a place of anguish. He also describes it as a flame or a place of fire. This ends all debate. I want you to hear me today. This ends all debate as to whether or not hell is real. Because Jesus is telling a true story about a certain man, about another man named Lazarus, and about a certain place called hell. He refers to them. And so we've got to see this for what it is. Listen to me carefully. 32 times in the Bible. The Bible refers to hell as a place of these things. Listen to these descriptions. Unquenchable. Everlasting. Eternal fire. Even a lake of fire. Like a furnace. And 19 times Jesus refers to hell as fire. And this also ends all debate as to whether it's going to be a party when you get there. I know I've heard like the songs and I've heard people say really foolish things about if he's going to hell, I want to go to hell with my buddy and we're going to party down there too. Sure. There's free beer and everything. No, no. Cause anything that quenches your thirst is not going to be there. There's not going to be a party. In fact, I'm going to tell you about the, the stark reality of what hell is going to be like for those who go there. According to what Jesus tells us in this passage, in hell you will desire comfort, but receive none. How many of you like this time of year? Getting all cozy and cuddled up and comfortable, right? You love it? I don't want to be that guy, but you won't get any of that, okay? You won't have any comfort like you have now. When he says in verse 24, send Lazarus to dip, he doesn't say dip his hand. He doesn't say bring a jug. He doesn't say any of that. He's simply asking literally for what would equate two or three drops of water on the tip of a finger to be able to comfort and quench and help. Yet no comfort is granted to the man who is in hell. I know this is a serious message and a hard message. Um, It was difficult for me to put it all together. But what I will tell you is this. Again, it should motivate you to understand when you, you, we can't sit here today and simply say, whoo, I'm so glad I'm not going there and be done. We have got to have the understanding that people who are there now are desiring comfort and receiving none. And that if we love those around us, care for those around us, even if we hate some of those around us, we should tell them about the saving love that God can bring and the gift of salvation that's available to every human. Point number two today, besides hell being real, it was not created for humans. So going back, and we didn't really fully answer this question, but I I could preach a message on that too, of why do bad things happen to good people, or how could a good God send people to hell? The answer is, hell was not created for humans. It was never intended for that. Remember what I shared with you last week? 
about the sheep and the goats from Matthew chapter 25. If you weren't here, you should listen to that message. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but it was a good message. Okay, If you didn't hear it, you should go back and listen to it. But listen to what it says in Matthew 25 verse 41. It says Jesus is talking about what's going to happen at the end. He will say to those on his left, those are the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Pay attention. Prepared for you. No, that's not what he says. Prepared for the devil and his workers, his angels. So you need to realize this. Hell was not created for humans. Jesus did not prepare hell for humans. He never, ever intended that to happen. There should be an eternal punishment for those who were supernatural beings who rebelled against God. But guess what? We are also supernatural beings. And if we choose to rebel against God, we cannot be in his presence. The Bible is clear about this. But John chapter 14, Jesus says these words. He says, when I'm leaving you, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. It's a powerful thought. It brings me hope and brings me joy. Something interesting too. Jesus was a carpenter on earth and he's still building things in heaven. I wonder if what you do here on earth you're going to be doing in heaven. Some of y'all hate your job and you're like, no, if that's the case, I'm not going to be in the right place. (laughs) But Jesus was a carpenter here and he's still building rooms for us there. Another thing you need to notice in this passage, you will express concern, but you will never be satisfied. This is really sobering. Verse 27 and 28 say this. And he said, then I beg you, father, pay attention to the words. He calls him father again to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. Every person in hell will have concerns like this and never be satisfied There are probably people today who are there in hell. I would venture to guess millions upon millions who are thinking thoughts like, I sure hope someone sends someone to my kids. I sure hope my my wife or my spouse doesn't end up here. They might even have a thought like this, and this really... This really changed the way that I prayed this week, and I hope it helps me stay in that same attitude, in that same mind frame, frame of mind. They may even think, well, I know Dexter, my neighbor, is a pastor, and he's a Christian. Surely he'll go and tell my family, not just me, but maybe others that you know are having those thoughts today. Maybe someone will go and tell my family or my friend. So hell is real, but it was not prepared and created with us to be there. Number three is this. Hell is avoidable. This is hopeful. Amen. 
This is, I'm sorry I'm having to sneak in some good news in there, but you know, cause it's a bad news message, but hell is avoidable. You don't have to go if you don't want to go and don't choose to go. If you choose him. So Matthew chapter seven says something interesting. It says this as Jesus is using the illustration of sheep. Enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. My wife and I got the privilege, had the privilege yesterday of going and attending a football game and went there with some friends and it was awesome. There were thousands of people, you know, walking around the stadium and everybody's just, you know, free moving wherever they want to be. But then all of a sudden you get in these security lines and everything gets really tight and it starts getting more and more difficult because you've got to go through a security check. Imagine. That idea when Jesus is saying there are many who choose the easy route in the free, you know, playing area kind of thing, but there are only a few that are willing to risk it all to go the narrow gate and push through to find that one. Jesus essentially is challenging us to be those few and to find others to add to that few to make them many. We've got to remember that we were created by God with a will to choose. If you don't know that, then you don't have family members, you don't have children, you don't have a spouse. Okay, going to go back to this. The entirety of scripture talks about two final destinations for all mankind. Every human needs to make the choice for themselves, but they've got to be given the choice. They've got to be told I want to tell you about four quick things and then I'll have the worship team come and join me. If you are here today and you are away from God and have not experienced his love or you have turned your back on him, today you have a choice to make. The Bible is very clear. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know if when we leave we'll die in a car accident. We have no idea what lies ahead of us. So you don't have the time to play around. But let me tell you about the four things that I want to point out that are absent in hell. There are two emotion, there are two physical properties that are absent in hell. The first is light. The Bible calls it a place of utter darkness or outer darkness, the absence of light. On the opposite end of the spectrum, it's so amazing when you read Revelation, not the weird parts, but the good, you know, I'm just kidding. Uh, when you read the good part and it says there will be no sun in heaven because the light of God's glorious presence will radiate all that we need. Because God is light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he actually then put it into you when you accepted him. And he said, since I can't be here, you have to be the light of the world. But there will be no light. If you've ever been in a super dark room and been freaked out, imagine that for eternity. And the other thing is there's a physical property that won't be there, and that is rest. You say, well, that's not a big deal. I mean, like, yeah, stay awake, whatever. No, you need it. You ever met a hangry person? Don't say amen, my wife. Um, But rest will not be there. The Bible actually calls hell a bottomless pit. I've seen some funny videos of people with virtual reality, 
you know, and they're, you know, moving and doing all this stuff and then they fall or whatever because they're seeing that happen. If you've ever had a dream where you fell and couldn't wake up, like you couldn't stop falling kind of thing. Imagine that for all of eternity, that there's no rest for you in this bottomless pit. There are two emotional properties that are absent in hell. The first is rest. And you say, well, I thought that was just a physical property. No, it's not. (laughs) There have been people who love me, who have asked me, do you need a nap? (laughs) It's an emotional, (laughs) it's an emotional property as well. Uh, And here's the thing. You'll find that no matter how hard your life is, that when you get a good night's sleep, all of a sudden you're kind of perky and better and that kind of thing. It's because it's emotional as well as physical. And the second thing is this hope. Here on this earth, you can be homeless. You can be put in jail. You could have a lot of pain. But you wake up with hope in your heart, even if you're an unbeliever, that tomorrow could be a different day. When you're in hell, there is no hope of redemption. There's no hope of reconciliation. There's no hope of relief. Hope is completely absent. Look at what Revelation chapter 14 verse 11 says. It says, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now you say, Pastor, are you pulling that out of context? Aren't those just a few people that are going to take the... No, they're going to be with those who are already experiencing eternal punishment and hell. I want to give you a ludicrous illustration for just a moment. I want you to imagine that you're coming home from the grocery store with groceries in the car. As you open up the garage, you go to drive into and go to park. You look over and you see your neighbor's house is on fire. Not a single one of us would close the garage door and empty out the groceries and think, surely someone will tell them. You say, Pastor, this, this is hitting hard this morning. The point is, somebody's got to tell them. Their house isn't on fire, but the Bible says that they will experience eternal fire if no one tells them. And I know this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and it might be a little bit salty, but even for those who are super spiritual, holy people, there's not a single one of us that would say, well, I guess I ought to just pray for them you would drop your eggs, your milk, and everything else, and you'd run. You'd call 911. You would run. You would call out. You would throw a brick in a window to break it, to get into that place, to save that neighbor who always yells about your cat or your dog or your trash or your whatever. Even the worst of neighbors, if you saw that happen, you would run to help. And you've got some neighbors this message hit me real hard. You've got some neighbors, they're coworkers that you spend shift time with. They're people in your life, they're not just coworkers, they're people who are roommates or have been classmates or coworkers and friends and you've got family members. I have my own who are headed down this path of destruction, but it can be avoided 
This is what's so awesome about our God is that he gives us a choice and lets us choose. Listen to what Romans 10 verse 14 says. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Like, how are they to know? It says, and how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? I want to stop you and be very, very cautious, like caution you about this. You can read this verse and see that word preaching and go, okay, it's just all on pastor. The word there is tell them. You have that same job to do that I do. How are they ever going to hear if no one tells them? I know it's a somber message, a sobering message. But hell is real. It wasn't made for you and it can be avoided. The simplicity of this message should stick in our hearts so that we not only live according to the truth of it, but also that we share the truth of it with those around us. You can listen to dozens, if not hundreds, of messages from our church over the last seven years of me preaching. You will never hear me preaching that you need to go to your coworker who's living a life that doesn't please God, judge them and start shouting at them and tell, you know what you need? You need to come to my church. You'll never hear a single message like that. But you will hear messages like this one offering hope so that we can offer that to others. The point is, is you can't shout about their condition. It does no good to run in the house and say, your house is on fire and then go and get the groceries. That's not helpful. But telling somebody the truth that could change their life, that can be helpful. I want you to stand with me today. There are two groups of people in this room. I would say those, those who are not saved and those who are. I want you to close your eyes with me for just a moment. I believe in giving you a choice and I hope you take advantage of that choice today. I've heard many messages and even listened to a few this week of some of my favorite speakers and preachers on the subject. And the reality is, is you should not leave here today the same way you walked in if you know that you would not go to heaven. You need to make the choice today. So if you're not sure that when you die that you'll go to heaven, don't put it off any longer. I want to ask you very clearly, I'm going to just let you have just a few seconds. I'm going to ask you to just slip your hand up and acknowledge, Pastor, I need to be prayed for. I'd like to talk to somebody at some point this week because I am not saved. My destination is not fixed on heaven. Raise your hand right now. Anybody here? To those who are saved, when is the last time that you shared your faith with someone? Look up at me for just a second because I'm going to give you some homework. It's an activity, not homework to do at home, but an activity to do right now. I want you to reach into the seat back right where you're standing. Find a prayer request card right now. Every single person. 
No one lifted their hand to acknowledge that they needed salvation today. So I'm going to take this as my cue that you are all saved. On that prayer card, I want you to grab a pen right now. And I want you to write the name of a person that you are going to commit to share the hope of the world with. If you don't start somewhere, you'll never get started. So today, my challenge to you is to think about the person that maybe you thought about throughout this message and thought, yes, I think about that person all the time. It's my brother. I've shared the gospel with him. He grew up in the same house as me. He's not living for the Lord and choosing the right path. But I'm committing today to make it a point this week to have a conversation with him. I want you to choose today. Use a pen and write the name of someone down. How crazy would it be if we talk about a God who judges according to the deeds done in our life and in our body? How crazy would it be for us to get to heaven and have the regret that we didn't do this, this right here today in sharing and choosing to share our faith with someone this week? You don't have to write a hundred names today. But I'm asking you, will you commit to pray this week for that person? Will you commit to step out and make a phone call, check in and see how they're doing and bring it around to God and what he's done and what he can do? That's, that's what the church needs to be doing so that when the Lord comes back, he can bring not just a few, but many. As we sing this last worship song, I just want you in your own place of your seats right now just to be making a prayer in your heart to the Lord and say, Lord, give me the opportunity to speak to so-and-so, whoever it is. Lord, help them to be receptive to the truth of your word. Pray just simple prayers like that. And with a genuine heart, I believe with all of my heart that God will hear and will answer you. And who knows what next weekend might bring. There might be people who live in Minnesota, Michigan, Wyoming, people, family, relatives, and people that you know that will end up choosing to go to church just because of that phone call. Lord, I pray right now that you would instill so deep in the body of Christ here and celebrate church the reality of the bad news. Father, I pray that you would help us to sincerely grab hold of this and to not let it go. Help it to keep us awake at night. Lord, I pray that as we pray prayers for these people this week, and as we take steps to step out and make phone calls or have lunch or coffee, that God, you would open up a door that no man can shut. And Lord, that you would authorize and ordain a moment for them to hear very clearly what your word says about the hope and the love that you offer. Father, I pray that you'd give us boldness. There are believers here today that need your Holy Spirit. So Father, I pray by the power of God, you would give the gift of the Holy Spirit that your word testifies and says will give us boldness. I pray for the introvert, for the quiet person, for the person who seems to be shy or maybe even a little bit ashamed. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would give us boldness to be able to share the truth in love this week. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray.